0: To be in Daniel 6 tonight, and it's going to be the last uh, sermon in our series on living in exile as Christians. uh, I was going to wait for a big moan right there, and it didn't happen. uh, (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Daniel's record goes on longer than this, but his story sort of ends in chapter 6. Uh, His visions that he saw that uh, perplex and terrify every preacher, go on in the book of Daniel, but I am not going to go on in the book of Daniel. So I'll say face that way and save you some time speculating. We're going to start next week in Advent, believe it or not, it's already Advent, and a series about why Jesus came, and then Lord willing, at the new year, we're going to start into a study of the Gospel of Mark. So that's what's coming up. But the exile sermon in Daniel's life, we're at the end of his life now. He's in his 80s at this point, And he's lived as a stranger in Babylon his whole life, really, since he was a teenager. It's all he's known. Um, and it hasn't really gotten easier. The whole Babylonian empire has been conquered now. And now the Medes and Persians have taken over. And, you know, for Daniel, it's sort of a... There's a new sheriff, same as the old sheriff situation, uh, his relationship with them, the tensions he feels because of his faith, and working in a government that doesn't share his faith, all that's still about the same for him. It's still really hard, even though he's done it for all these years, and there's still a lot of conflict that comes up. He's found a way to keep his hope in exile for a whole life, which is pretty amazing, and is what we need too, a way... Not just to have a correct belief that your hope is going to uh, maintain you through the things that are difficult as living uh, kind of as a stranger in your own, own town, but even an imagination that's sort of fueled by it. Like, he sees through lenses that show him that God really is the true king of the world even though it doesn't seem like it where I live, and is able to maintain hope in that that makes him faithful. And so that's the kind of hope that we need and the kind of vision we need to thrive, too, in exile. So what's we're going to think about as we look at his story? Famous story, it's Daniel and the Lion's Den. Uh, Those of you who are terrified by seeing how long it is, um, I don't know what to tell you, it's that long. I would say this, why don't you listen instead of reading along with this? It's easy to follow, and for 1,600 years and probably more, most Christians experience with The scriptures was hearing them read, and I don't think that's any kind of a rule or anything, but I think in a long narrative like this, it's easier if you just listen. It's not a rule. If you want to read alone, you can. (laughs) But let me pray for this first. Uh, Father, please use this uh, story that many of us know and love uh, to help us to thrive in faithfulness to you at this place where you have put us in exile. Come speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we'll not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement with the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and governors— or agree that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore King Darius signed the document an injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came here and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, king, you know it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your gods whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel." Then the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. Sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them. And broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, "Peace be multiplied to you! I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel." From the power of the lions, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks nice be God. It's a pretty uh, intense story to be famous as like a children's Sunday school story, isn't it? I mean, it's very violent, and um, but there are depictions of it in art in a lot of places, and they have different levels of sentimentality to them. Gustav Dorr has one called Daniel in the Lion's Den. I don't know if you've seen it before, it's pretty famous. But it has Daniel standing in the lion's den, and the lions around him who are basically acting like house cats. You know, one of is kind of climbing on the rocks behind him like cats are on the top of the sofa, and, and uh, one's curled up at his feet. You know, there's one at his side, and he's sort of scratching its mane thing. And it's a, it's a bizarre scene. Uh, as if lions weren't dangerous, right? Um, He's kind of at peace in the eye of the storm as it is. Things are not okay. He's not safe there, but he is safe there because God has stopped the mouths of the lions. But they're lions, and they're hungry, and it's in some ways the worst place in the world he could be. In some ways, it's the best place in the world that he could be. It's God's him from the lions. Uh, All through the story, you see, he has sort of a... uh, a really heroic and impressive kind of hope in God that seems to make him courageous and uh, he seems fearless, at least his fears don't get talked about in the record of what happens here. Uh, but somehow the hope that he has makes him able to put his trust in God in the midst of a terrifying situation. And I want us to think about that hope that he has uh, because he has to have it all through his exile and we need it if we're going to thrive in exile. And kind of two heads under this. The first is that exile really is hard, and the second is we have a hope that really can make a difference in exile. So, first, exile is hard. Um, some some people will say, you hear here and there, that the point of the Christian faith is to make your life easier and better, and it'd be an awfully hard case to make from the Bible, that the point of Christian faith is to give you a cushy life here. I mean, the further typical human life that we've ever seen is the life of Jesus Christ, and his life was anything but easy or without conflict and things like that. But in exile, you really, you really see it more and feel it more. It seems like there's more open uh, conflict and opposition that happens for you because of your faith. Um, one is you're always having to try to handle the tensions, you know, between... How much do I say and how much don't I say about my faith in the world? When I'm living with a lot of people I know who don't share my convictions, um, how do I handle that? I want to be persuasive on one hand. I care about my friends enough. I want them to have my hope. But I don't want to be abrasive and obnoxious, always picking fights over the faith. And um, It's always kind of a hard road to navigate. You never know how much you're supposed to say. Daniel decided, in this case, to be very overt. You Know he could have closed his blinds, he could have prayed inside, and no one really would have known. Um, but he thought it was important to open the blinds and pray in a way that people could tell. Um, so the people spying on him knew that he prayed three times a day. He thought it would be over private for him in that situation to close the blinds up. Um, but he wasn't fanatical, he wasn't overly aggressive about it. Uh, he wasn't uh, He wasn't picketing at the king's palace saying, you know, this injunction is wrong. You know, it should be changed and things. He just just went about his prayers. And the strangest thing to me, though, is he's not a cynic. I mean, he's been living with envious, manipulative, typical government people. He's been in in public life for 60 plus years in a pagan, godless, administration, both the Babylonian and the Persian, that don't respect him, don't respect his core beliefs and things, and he's watched them act like people act in public life over time, and now he's watching people who used to be Babylonian, who've been brought into the Persian orbit, and now they're in public life and they hate their new overlords, and you know, they're probably behaving worse than ever now, and somehow in all that, Daniel's staying somewhat faithful and not becoming cynical about his life, you know, if I was him, I'd be thinking, you know, am I really serving God here at all, and I've been here helping these administrations that I don't even like for 60 plus years, I've been helping them do things that I wish they wouldn't do, and um, I'm supposed to be here serving God, because God placed me here to do his bidding, but I mean, all I can see is a couple of times, uh, a king had a dream, and I went and interpreted it, so that's like two days out of 60 years that I felt like maybe my job has some connection to God and what he's doing. And yet, he's somehow remained faithful at it. has a reputation of being really honest at his work, even for the new administration, which is remarkable and impressive. But he's having to live with that tension every day. How much do I say? How much don't I say? How do I live this faith out in a world where most people don't share it? And then... He realizes that even when he's trying to lay low and not stir up trouble, that he's still going to be provocative. He can't help but be provocative, and you find this as a Christian, right? You know, you, you don't have to go picking bites to for people to find what you believe and do somewhat provocative. Um, you know, Daniel's being honest in a government job, which probably makes the other guys look bad, and so they resent him for that. They probably resent him for his high position you know, which he doesn't have that much control over. And they seem to resent his faith because that's the scheme they use to try to get him in trouble. Uh, they seem to resent these things. And he's not trying to pick fights with them. You, know, you never see Daniel, Daniel mocking their beliefs or, uh, or, you know, posting memes on the internet that say people who don't believe what I believe are stupid. Or He doesn't do any of that. And he still kind of gets in trouble all the time. I heard a story one time about Billy Graham was playing golf in a charity Event, I may have told you this, but you know somebody who was paired with him came in uh, after the round, stormed in the locker room, slammed in the locker door, and says, "I don't need anybody like Kramer religion down my throat." And the other guys who were in there said, "Whoa, what did Billy Graham say?" He said, "Nothing." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you sort of feel like that's Daniel's situation. He hasn't done anything uh, really to be provocative, but he's still in trouble. But you can't. You can't get around this. This is part of what's hard about living in exile. Because you, just the nature of the Christian faith itself is hard for people to understand. Um, when we say we have hope in Jesus Christ, and we think like he's the way to be reconciled to God, really the only hope we have of being reconciled to God and having our sins forgiven and being reconnected to God, most people hear that and they say, well, you're, you're narrow, either because you're stupid or you're arrogant. Uh, to think that you're the ones who've cornered the truth. And Christians are saying, I think being narrow and arrogant is really wrong, and I don't want to be either one of those at all. But we've been presented with Jesus Christ, who's come, who's credibly claimed to be God's own son, uh, who's claimed that what he did to come rescue us and his death on the cross was essential for us to be reconciled to God, and for us to say, Yeah, we appreciate that, but we think there are lots of other ways, and this was really superfluous, you didn't need to do all that, um, because all these other religions are fantastic and great too, and really, that was a waste of your effort. That feels arrogant to us, and so we're like, how do we hold on to this idea that we're not smarter than anybody? We're not Christians because we think Muslims are stupid, or because we think Hindus are stupid, or naturalists are stupid. We're Christians because we think Jesus rose from the dead, and it feels arrogant for us to say something other than that. We're saying we have a chance to be right with God, not because we're better than anyone. We're worse than everyone. Jesus helps people who are bad, right? So that's, we're trying to say that. All anybody can hear is you're arrogant and narrow. And I don't think you're ever going to resolve that tension. Um, Hopefully your friends will see that you treat them with respect and gentleness, but that's just going to be a place where there's a provocation that you're probably not going to be able to resolve. And I'm sure there'll be others too. But living in exile is inevitably involves conflict, and it's hard. And we've been talking about that for several weeks, and you've been living it for longer than that. Uh, but exile's hard. You just have to come to terms with that. But the second thing is we have hope in our exile. All right, we have hope in our exile. You're here on purpose. Like God put you in Tucson because God wanted you in Tucson. Believe it or not. Uh, whatever fascinating decisions you made caused that to happen. Um, God has scattered us in the nations, it says, as exiles and strangers, so we can be on his errand, right? so we can uh, promote his kingdom, and hope to see it come and spread, see people find hope in him, uh, to see reconciliation happening on earth because of what he's done for us, uh, living lives of love and self-sacrifice in his name and among the nations. You're here on purpose. He put you here. And um, your hope, if you're going to be able to keep that mindset that you're here on God's errand, and that he's going to finish his errand, your hope is the same hope that Darius got to at the end of the passage, where he says, God is the living God, he's the real God, and he has a kingdom that will never end. And that's what we're pursuing, that's what we believe, that's where our hope is. It's not apparent now, but Jesus is actually the king of the world and he's fixing the world. And it won't be finished until he returns again. But it's progressing. He's spreading his fame in the world and he's spreading his healing in the world, and we're here about that. All right? That's what he's put us here to do. It just doesn't seem like it. You know, most people, when they, especially if, if you get old, you start looking back over your life and you think things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. All right? And Christians have the mindset that no, we're. There's a progressiveness to what's going on in history. The big story of what God's doing is that he's fixing the world, and it's, um, it's going to be, you know, at least incrementally, things are going to improve until Jesus returns on some level, but that just doesn't feel like it most days. Right? Most days it just feels like the world's in the same mess that it's always been in, and I'm not making much of a difference in that anyway. And so that's the challenge. You somehow have to keep in your imagination the big story that I'm here on an errand that is Jesus' mission in the world, which is he's going to fix the world. The world rebelled against him. We broke everything in the world through our rebellion against God, and Jesus has come to fix it all and set the world back right side up, reconcile us to God and fix all the collateral damage of our war with him. That's really happening. That's really the story of history. That's what Jesus is doing. But there's not much that reinforces that in your mind. When you look at the news and you look at the world and you look at your job, it just feels like one more mundane day after another and there is no big story. So you have to do something to train your imagination to feel the big story. You have to connect yourself to that somehow in a way that's going to sustain you if you're going to thrive. And, uh, you know, Daniel finds some ways to do this. We get little glimpses. There, his things aren't really biblically prescribed. Like, he uh, he prays toward Jerusalem. Do you pray towards Jerusalem? I'm sure you do sometimes inadvertently. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> but um, the Bible doesn't say you have to pray towards Jerusalem. You know, it speaks metaphorically if you look toward the temple, but it, that's not a rule. It's not like Mecca with Islam. Yeah. And uh, but he does it sort of, I think, to provoke hope in his own heart. You know, to say, like I'm remembering that the promises that attached to Jerusalem, what God was doing through Abraham's family are the big story of the world, and they're still true, even though I've been here for 80 years in this uh, God for second place. I'm remembering Jerusalem. I'm remembering my hope in the big story. And then he, does, he has a, a sort of a ritual for prayer. He prays three times a day. And um, does the Bible say you have to pray three times a day? No, that's, that's a choice he made to pray three times a day. And when you're in a place where there doesn't, there's not much that reinforces your faith, a lot of times having uh, some rituals, some liturgy like this helps you, uh, ground your imagination, sort of trains your imagination to uh, remember your hope. And so some of what we do at church isn't biblically prescribed that we have to do it this way, but they're habits that we use because they help us remember the big picture. The church calendar is one of those. We're not super adamant about the church calendar, but having Advent, and Christmas and Lent and Easter and, and Pentecost and all these things are, are reminders to us that there's a bigger story in our lives than just what we see every day. And Daniel's kind of doing that. But he has to reinforce his faith without ever getting to go to an Easter service. Like, he never got to go and sing about the resurrection with other Christians and um, be super happy and cry about that. Like, he never got to go to a Christmas Eve service. And say that the long expected Messiah has come, and we sing to celebrate And uh, We have these helps in our lives that are gifts, and uh, we need them. He did what he could, uh, and he managed really well. One thing I like to do to help me is as uh, my favorite toast is uh, next year in Jerusalem. Right? It's the Passover toast that they would say at the Passover meal. Next year in Jerusalem, and especially in exile. The the Jews would say this, that we want to be restored to our true home and our true hope. But we know Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, is the one uh, that Jesus is preparing for us now. It's the new creation coming down from heaven, our real home. Uh, But to say next year in Jerusalem always reminds me, um, no matter how good or bad things are now, our real hope is future. And so you can steal that without even footnoting (laughs) me. Daniel also can remember some miracles. I'm sure he will remember this one for a long time about the lions, which is pretty remarkable. But these miracles where, like always in the Bible when you have a miracle, it's an intrusion of the way things are supposed to be. Usually we think it's an abnormality when you have a miracle. Uh, But really, all the miracles in the Bible are demonstrations of how things should be. Uh, Glimpses of the future. So when Daniel is with lions that are hungry, and they aren't killing him. It's an anticipation of what we know, is promised in the prophet Isaiah, that in the new creation, the lion will lie down with the lamb. In the new creation, lions won't want to kill us. And this is an anticipation of that. I always think of Woody Allen's line, he said, the lion will lie down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. (laughs) But the closed mouths of the lions are in anticipation of the, of the fixed world, and Daniel has that at least to go by, as well as things like the fourth man in the fire, uh, when his friends were thrown into the fire, or now this the angel of the Lord that comes to be with him when he's in the lion's den. Uh, he has these things to remember. He also knows uh, the vision that he has list that is described in chapter 7 of Daniel, the vision of the Son of Man. He says, "Has a vision of one like a son of man who comes to the ancient of days and is given a kingdom that will last forever and authority over all the kings of the earth." And then we know when Jesus came, and we'll see this a lot in the Gospel of Mark. His favorite term for himself was the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man who's come as the true King of the world uh, to reestablish the world in peace. And uh, so Daniel has these glimpses, at least, of things that we get to see more. Uh, fully, but they create lenses for him to look at the world. So he doesn't just see corrupt administration around him and uh, corrupt bureaucracy around him. He sees the big picture of what God's doing in the world. And uh, is able to live with hope as an exile because of that. Sam and Frodo got back to the Shire after their quest, but they were different. They weren't, they weren't like they used to be. They're back home The Shire's where they're from, but they don't quite fit there anymore. I mean, on one hand, they see they're they're way less afraid and worried about the little petty things that scare everybody else in the Shire. That's kind of a help to the Shire, to have them be there and to be brave. Um, But they also laugh too loud, and they sing weird songs now, and they tell stories about things that are different. And that is troubling to people, of course. They've got a vision of this better country beyond the Western Sea, and they keep talking about it. They describe it as a a country of white shores and beyond that a far green country under a swift sunrise. But in the Shire, all the lands around the Shire are just black on the maps. In the Shire, all they know is the shire is the whole world to them. And Sam and Frodo have been way out beyond that and they speak of a hope that's way beyond the Shire. And uh, they care about the Shire still, but they're not home anymore. And that's what being an exile feels like. Even if you live where you grew up, you're not really home anymore in the same sense. It's sort of like the Magi, those intriguing people who came from where Daniel lived at the birth of Jesus. Bizarre story, right? You think, how connected is the experience of Daniel in Babylon with the Magi who come at the birth of Jesus. And you don't know, but you think, how else would they have heard about uh, who the God of Israel is and the King of the Jews that is anticipated? How would they know about these things? You don't know. The uh, poem by T.S. Eliot, uh, called The Journey of the Magi, which is a wonderful poem, it's written from the perspective of the Magi as they go back home after having seen Jesus and his birth. And how... Uh, ambiguous their response to it is. They're happy on one hand for what they've seen but they also realize it's changed and ruined everything for them as they go back home because they don't fit anymore. And at the end of the poem he says this We return to our places these kingdoms but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death and uh, this is what Daniel felt he was with an alien people clutching their gods and he didn't feel ease or at home there and was probably glad of another death when he got to experience it because that's the life of exile that's the life that God has called us to your exile's here even if you're from here this isn't your home anymore but you're here on the king's errand right? you're here on the king's errand and you have to keep that hope in the very front of your minds. now let's pray Father, I pray for myself, my friends here, um, our exile is so pleasant, and we love where we live, and I'm so thankful to get to live where we live, and yet we do feel our strangeness some, um, and we ask that you let us uh, really be faithful on your errand here, that you let us bear the costs that come because of it, and that you let us live with the hope that we have in you. Uh, We ask that you've let us at least, though, have a vantage point to watch your kingdom coming here. We want to see our friends coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to see some of the brokenness of the city turned back. And uh, we ask that you've let us see you at work in those ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.